Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Nolan. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. for curbside pickup and masked in-store browsing. And if you're planning on doing holiday shopping with us, be sure to get it in early. Uh, Shop online at skylightbooks.com, and you can check out all of our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, uh, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. And now on to the show. Joining us today, we have Reva Lehrer, an artist, writer, and curator whose work focuses on issues of physical identity and the socially challenged body. She is best known for representations of people with impairments and those whose sexuality or gender identity have long been stigmatized. A longtime faculty member of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Reva Lehrer is currently an instructor in medical humanities at Northwestern University. And joining her is Terry R. Myers, a Los Angeles-based writer and independent curator, currently an editor-at-large of the Brooklyn Rail. Since 1988, he has contributed to more than 40 journals and magazines, including After All, Art Review, Art Text, Arts Magazine, Flash Art, uh, Gagosian Quarterly, LA Weekly, Modern Painters, Parquet, and The Scene. He is the author of Mary Heimann. Heilman, Save the Last Dance for Me, and the editor of Painting, Documents of Contemporary Art. Most recently, he has published essays on the work of Cecily Brown, Katharina Gross, Barclay L. Hendricks, and Eddie Martinez, and his most recent curatorial project was the survey exhibition Candida Alvarez here at the Chicago Curatorial Center that was followed by the, the publication of Candida Alvarez here, a visual reader. He has held faculty positions at Art Center College of Design, Otis College of Art and Design, Pratt Institute, the Royal College of Art in London, and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where he was professor and chair of painting and drawing from 2013 to 2018. And they are here to discuss Reva's new book, Gollum Girl, a memoir. And I will let you guys take it away. Welcome. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Reva, for doing this again. Um, A couple housekeeping things. Uh, Reva and I, before the release of her amazing memoir, we did a Zoom interview that really focused on Reva's uh, practice as as an artist, her painting and drawing practice. Um, because we wanted to save the book launch and everything for when the book was out. And um, so this is a great opportunity 
to focus um, on the book. And of course, with the podcast not being visual, um, um, we could imagine in our heads um, images. But I will say one um, word of advice is if you're listening to this, maybe you'd want to have on your computer or phone or something, um, rivalerart.com which is Reva's website. So you could see her amazing artwork. Um, I've known Reva for a while when I was chair of painting and drawing at the School of the Arts in Chicago. She was faculty there. Um, that's when I really got to know her, been a massive fan of her artwork. And also um, was there on a few occasions to hear her talk about what it meant to write this book. Um, so I have lots of questions, Reva, about the book, and I want to try to stay focused on the book um, because I do think the book is um, important and um, will be read for years to come. Um, revolutionary, maybe, is a word I would even use in the best senses of that word. So I want it, but you know me, Riva, that I'm also, I'm an unapologetic formalist in many ways. Mm. Um, I'm curious about, one of the things I love about the book, I think I said this to you, is it's around 400 pages long and there are 61 <laughs> chapters. And I was really happy that there were 61 chapters. Do you want to talk about just the, I, I think I know the answer to this, but why that structure that it came into being, well, like why so many, off, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to start by thanking everyone for being here and thank you to Kelsey who introduced you because she reminded me of how terrifyingly uh, impressive you are. So I'm just taking a moment <laughs> Back to get, at you. My, get over my terror. Um, so uh, the book took a long time and I don't really have a background in uh, literary studies, um, at least not for a long time. So the book was very much an experience of learning on the job. Um, and it was rewritten three times. So the first time it was written, uh, I was thinking about, so the book is about, um, it's a memoir, but it is a memoir in which I'm trying to use my life experience in order to explore and open up um, the experience of embodiment in the world and how particularly how humans not only view each other's embodiment, but the pressures that we bring to bear on each other in order to become normalized. Um, and some of them are very subtle. Some of them are certainly not, but some of them are very subtle. So it has never been that important to me that it's my life specifically. I didn't have this burning desire for everybody to know about my life at all. Um, but I did feel like a lot of my life did function as a series of uh, doorways into contemporary embodiment. So when I first wrote the book, I had written it in four parts um, and each one was a different world. So there was the world of uh, the hospital where I spent huge amounts of my life, including my first two years as a child, I didn't leave at all. The world of home and trying to figure out 
how to be the only disabled person in my family and often the only disabled person in my neighborhood or the only disabled person, you know, within view anywhere ever. And then uh, the world of, um, I went to a special school, <laughs> as they say in one of my favorite movies, the specials, how do you know you're special? You went to a special school. <laughs> so, um, and then finally, uh, how all of that led to my entree into um, both queer and disability culture. So I had written each one as a different world and thinking about how one's identity shifted going from one place to the next. And my editor said, oh my God, this is so hard to follow. <laughs> we can't and, and, we're called one, we're, and we're called One World Press, Reba. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> yeah, One World there. <laughs> so I rewrote it to be chronological, but I wrote it in continuous present tense. And they said, that's kind of over, that's been done to death. We don't want it in continuous present tense. So then I wrote it again in mostly past tense with some ex exceptions. And so by the time I had gone through all that, I had to really think about how to have things so that they stayed somewhat thematic so that each chapter was about an aspect of embodiment um, through family, through love, through education, through art, um, without it turning into a bunch of essays, they needed to stay as stories. So for me, there was very much a tension between um, not having it read like an essay collection whilst tr trying to make sure that each chapter had a, a reason for telling that story. So that's how we ended up with 61 chapters. And right. But what's remarkable, um, Again, as someone who, what I share with you, one thing I share with you, maybe the key thing for this conversation is I never intended to be a writer, to become an art critic. My degrees were in visual art. I moved to New York to become an artist. You know, I fell into what I did. I, I never took a writing course, you know, and I do think that there's something about artists who are equipped to write not every artist is, but you definitely are, that it's your being an artist, being a painter, that made this possible to be on so many levels. One is um, artists, a good artist has to be their best editor too. You know, like, like the, the, the editing function within the studio is not the same as an editor, especially when you have a great editor um, for your writing. And as I used to tell students, you know, they always used to think I just got to do what I want and say what I want. And I'm like, uh, honey, that's not how it works. And in fact, I don't want it to work that way. I am so appreciative when you have a great editor who really knows how to get you to do your best work. But an artist, you know, great artists do that in their own studio. So you're trained in your, in a visual, mechanical way. And I think that the, the structure of the book to me reinforces a sort of structure in your artwork of how stories are presented, how stories are built, you know, how you build a story in your work. And again, I would encourage people to look at your website to sort of maybe get some sense of what I'm talking about. But the key thing, and it's a segue then to even the title of the book, Gollum Girl is, you know, 
uh, Reven and I, uh, at the School of the Art Institute, we often sat together on these critique panels for graduate students. You know, the, the notion of critique where the work is up and, and faculty are, are responding to it. Um, one of my big mantras in those rooms as often the only non-artist and the, the critic was, you know, your artwork ultimately doesn't probably care that much about you and it's going to have its own life out in the world you know and someone like me is going to come see it and maybe not be so invested in all the things that you think you're bringing to it so um, given how invested you are in your work and we could talk about that a bit I'll also say there's something about this idea of the golem and how you use it to describe yourself that also becomes a metaphor for the work of art as its own kind of body. Yes. And the work of art as this thing that gets pieces put on it or pieces taken, you know, like the building of the work of art in this, in this relationship, you know, with the artist, but then with the viewer. Um, to me, mirrors maybe in a peculiar way, and I'm not really thought this through, your experience as you've described it in the book about how Riva Lehrer herself was constructed. So I, that's a lot, I know, but. Um. <laughs> well, I've, uh, I've, you brought up a lot of interesting stuff there. One is just backing up a little bit in terms of being at the school is that, and being an artist who writes, is that uh, I've been teaching for decades now, um, even before SAIC. I was teaching for at least 15 years before that, and I've been at SAIC for almost 20 years. And um, when you are starting, especially to teach some of the upper levels, you have to figure out how to verbalize things that are absolutely not verbal, whether it's your own advice uh, about what something, you know, you can't just always pick up a brush or whatever and say, it needs more green here or something. You have to, be able to look at very nonverbal experiences and make them discussable. And I think that that's a lot of what my training was really as a writer, was constantly being, able, being forced to not only discuss my own work, but in some ways more to the point discussing the work of my students, um, because you have to look for that thread. Where's the beginning of the story here? And how can we bring it out in the light so that I understand what you're doing and you understand what I'm seeing that might be strong or problematic. So, um, so I think that it's often a cop-out to say artists can't talk about their work or they're bad at it. I think we absolutely need to have that skill that said, you know, you can also get into the world of the dreadful artist statement. Yeah, we don't is, need to go there. Yeah, we don't so. need to go there. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I don't read there. them. I don't oh, read them. There, no, I, they need to be very short and very clear. And, um, but <clears throat> when you make, one of the things I do believe is that when you make a work of art, you know that you exist in a way that nothing else can make you feel you have externalized something into the world that is separate from you that would not have existed without you. And, you know, I'm not a person with children. I know that 
there are some parallels there, but art is not a child. Um, and so not only have I got a lifetime of doing that, what I do is I recreate other people's bodies. And so because I'm a figure artist and I'm trying so hard to understand the interiority of the person I'm working with and get their trust in me to get something right about them. And as I talk about, so because I paint and draw people with um, variant bodies, uh, you know, people with different morphologies, people who uh, present in some non-standard way um, or people who for just reasons of racism or you name it, have been treated badly because of their embodiment. It's really important to me to get them right, to be, because a lot of the point of what I do is this body exists. This body exists in this way, at least at the moment that I'm painting it. And so um, I am trying to set my own needs aside a lot of the time as a, and we've talked about this, I'm not very invested formally in ways that we think of as formal investment because I'm trying to be in a certain way somewhat invisible um, and just let that body come forward be a, be a, a channel um, for this other person's existence. Well, obviously the art wouldn't exist without me. So I'm there in a lot of ways. But when I think of some of the great, really much more formally inventive painters, I know that were I, for instance, to take an Alice Neal approach, um, you know, so many people I can think of, but she's an obvious one, approach to my subjects the reality of their embodiment would just go out the window. So it's a strange trade-off and one that I think often gets me um, classed as more conservative than I am. I'm not conservative in any no. way. Well, and I, I would just interject and say, you shifted the way I knew you would, I guess, from the formal is the wrong word. It's a more, it's a structural sort of constructive you know, that, that what you just described about your sort of disappearing and trying to represent mm -hmm. this, this, this body under, you know, from the most benign sort of misunderstanding to out and out abuse and misuse by society or whatever is um, the work of art as a constructed body itself, no matter what it is. Yes. And there's a mirroring there that I think happens and I bring it up again, if people are looking at your website, there are these innovative structural things that you started doing in the work that related to the sort of procedures of the work. And I do wanna to get to that in a moment, but before we go any farther, I just wanna make sure we say it crystal clear, the book is called Gollum Girl, and yeah. I want you to talk about I, the Gollum. I, let me, let me talk about that. <laughs> yeah. um, one, one fast aside first, which is that when you're talking about building bodies, that I'm building bodies. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the Golem first. 
So the story of the golem goes all the way back to uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, the first golem is Adam, and he's referred to as golem or goylem, just meaning uh, unformed. He's an unformed mass. And that what God does in the Bible is, you know, make him comprehensible and then breathes life into him. And so he's a clay object that is brought to life. And the, the image of the magically animated body goes through every culture that I can possibly find, lots of variations, um, but generally there's some kind of breath. So whether that's a word, an incantation, uh, a prayer written down that is the, the representation of the word, you know, there's something that makes this uh, artificial body um, come to life. And in almost every story, that body serves the purpose of its maker. It's not created for itself. It's almost always um, for some kind of dire reason or rare occasions because a parent wants a, um, a child and can't find one any other way. But it's not created because this being is gonna go off and have a great life. And- Or an independent just, one, you know. Right. And it just suddenly occurs to me to think about, and forgive me anyone who's Christian out there, that one might even think of Jesus as a kind of uh, form of a golem in that he's, you know, created for the purposes of the salvation of humanity. And anyway, that's a whole other thing I've been thinking about lately. So you, you um, made so the connection. The, <laughs> yeah. So in the in the um, Hebrew or in the Jewish tradition, there is a story that in 16th century Prague, there was a pogrom coming for the Jews of Prague. And a pogrom, for anyone that doesn't know, uh, has been going on for centuries where the, the Gentile population of a city or a town would, especially around some holiday, would go and um, attack the Jewish enclave of the city. And they would kill people, burn down their houses, you know, rape their women. Um, and it was all based, you know, on various ideas that underlie anti-Semitism. So the chief rabbi of Prague hears that there's going to be a terrible uh, pogrom around Easter and that it's going to just wipe out everyone, that it's hugely, this is going to be major. So he prays on uh, what to do about it. And he receives, now there are a lot of versions of this. This is the right. one that I use. So um, he receives this vision that he should go down to the river and create this magical being. And that he's given uh, um, a mystical prayer that has one of the secret word names of God. And that he's to write this down and put it in the, um, mouth of the clay creature and also on its forehead write the word emet which means truth and so he does this he goes down to the river and he builds this this man and the man rises up and it's taxed with you know going back to needing a, being built for a purpose every night it steals into the gentile part of prague and listens at doors and you know finds out who the conspirators are and gets them in various versions, sometimes he kills them. Mostly he puts them 
mysteriously in jail. So when the jailers come in in the morning, the jails are full of these conspirators. So the problem is that each time the golem goes out, he gets a little bigger because he's experiencing the world and he's becoming his own entity. And so he comes back in the morning and he's a little bit bigger and the rabbi makes him sleep in some stories. And this goes on and on until he's just enormous and he's now out of control. So the, but the point is that the golem has now acquired its own purpose and that can't be sustained. It can, a golem can only, a robot, uh, you know, Mr. Data, um, Frankenstein, uh, you, you, Gollum, you know, all these- Ultron you know, in the series. Avengers movies, which would be right. my reference. <laughs> uh, all of the robot stories, all of the alien stories just about have to do with creatures that have to obey their masters. So, um, so eventually the rabbi realizes that this, he decides this can't go on. He tricks the golem into leaning over and then he wipes the first letter in the word I'll, in the word met, uh, I'm sorry, emet. So it begins with an olive. And if you wipe out the olive, it becomes the word met, which means dead. And the golem falls down into a heap. So the reason that I based my book on that is that uh, I have always felt like a constructed creature. I've had I don't like framing the book as a medical narrative. It's not. Um, but just to be clear, I've had 46 surgeries. I've been in the hospital for literally years at a time. Um, and each of the scars in my body I've always regarded as the signature of one of my creators. And so I feel like I'm marked everywhere with these so, you know, sometimes just hardly perceptible marks and sometimes just enormous ropes of, of uh, collagen. Right, and, and, and can, I, can I just interject and say that one of the remarkable things about the book is something, you know, to be read and enjoyed is that the medical narrative is throughout, it's there, but it doesn't, you know, because you're, you, you, you are juggling so many balls in the air in this book. It's kind <laughs> of amazing that, um, like, you know, there, there are various people have said, you know, there's several movies to be made out of this book. There's several, <laughs> you know, that, 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 um, so I do want to say, Reva, you're right, but it is, it is, a it is a core part of the construction of the book and you tell it you tell it as beautifully as everything else you tell in the book. That's the other thing that I find so amazing is that, again, as someone who knows you, the the and the Rivalera voice comes through. And again, I, you did do your own audiobook. I know that. I can't do <laughs> audiobooks because I feel like I get distracted. And I like the sep I I have to read books. That the the hearing the voice in my head and relating to the word is important to me. But I do, your voice is just comes out clarion call throughout this book. And then you do something else structurally that people, I get in trouble myself sometimes, but you figured out a different way of doing it is, you know, I love the moments where like you'll 
put an asterisk and then you'll put something at the bottom of the page like mm -hmm. like the one point you're talking about the the, the work you're making and the, how the these paintings of these women are being interpreted and you know this like you're only willing to go to this sort of like uh moment like and then it, you put it in the bottom of the page you write something like other than that time i made these lesbo zines or whatever these, yeah. these lesbo zines, like this other voice and I, I i had someone teasingly call me the master of the parenthetical ones because i like and and then but then someone the one time someone wrote about my writing they said that they saw it as I was invested in the sort of sotto voce, that sort of like other voice. And I'm like, exactly. So this book is just like, it's all your voice, but your ability to like, it jumps around, but there's a kind of consistency in the writing and in the style that to me relates back to your paintings again, that like, you know, a Rivalera work when you see it. And I feel like we know a Rivalera book now when we read it, like, because because that's the that's the that's the form the structure that um, um, sustains the whole thing. Um, it is it is it is truly a page turn in that regard too. And again, I think the short chapters help because there are some books, novels, often where like like Knausgaard, who is an interesting novelist to Just bring up relationship to. You know, like yeah. there's sometimes I'm like, oh, come on, you know, I need a break somewhere so I can put the bookmark in and go to bed, you know, whereas with you, I didn't have to worry about that at all. But then I just kept wanting to read. So I just wanted to say that out to the listeners because this is a book that to me fulfills all those terms that when we call something a page turner. Yeah. I love that you just said that because I fought like crazy with my editors about the footnotes. There, there's a version of this book that has uh, 10 times as many footnotes because I love footnotes. I like the way that they can provide an intimate, like a very pr oddly private dialogue with the reader. Like you, you've got the narrative and then the asides can be a different tone or just like you're telling them a little secret, like just between the two of us, this is what was really going on. Right. And I've always loved that. And because my painting is so much, of, it's entirely about intimacy. Everything I do in the studio is based on constructing, it, it's, very, it's very involved with the power relationships between artist and subject. And so intimacy, um, is it how do i even say it like if you can't feel like you're being talked to directly in whatever form you're doing then right. it's agitprop what well, i think another thing i'll say and maybe this is taking it too far you could tell me if i am is that the other thing that i think is great about how you do it is it's always and it it's because i know you i think this is true it's also this way of you like making sure that we as readers know, you know, you're not a drama queen. You're not trying to take yourself too seriously. And, but you are aware, like I've said this to you in the past, I'm like, well, Reva, just get over it. You know, like, just get off. You know, like, <laughs> like, like there's a way that like the, that allows the book to sort of get over itself in moments. Like mm. you can like take a breath or like, you know, and I think that gives it a, I'm always thinking about, like I talk about, visual artworks often is having their own internal combustion engine. Like what's the mm -hmm. machine that's sort of like the pistons that are sort of grinding the work forward. 
And I think that there are these things that you do as a writer and that come out of your own voice and the, the construction of your voice, like we all have a, 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 that, that, um, that fuel the energy of the book from beginning to end. Um, I have to think more about that. And I, I want to reread it again before I really commit to a lot of what I just said, but it is there, but it makes, maybe, do you want to read the section now? Is now a good time? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that. Um, um, sorry, I'm putting on the reading glasses, listeners. Hang on. All right. Um, so what you need to know is that this is from part two. The book is in two parts. The first one is uh, basically my childhood until I go to college. And part two is um, uh, becoming a sexual person. And you do need to know that when I grew up, I was very, very much told that I would always be alone, that um, because I was disabled and visibly, very visibly disabled, that that disqualified me for any kind of romantic relationship. And so here I am in college, I have become involved with my first boyfriend whom I am passionate about. And yet I find myself obsessing about this woman in my drawing class. And so we had been going through what my feelings meant and I had put it all aside until here we are. The chapter 37, I'm just gonna read a couple pages. It's called Suspiria. Each chapter heading, by the way, is taken from a horror movie or a horror novel. April, 1979. I was about to turn 21. Will was gone again, this time to a spring co-op in Chicago. Adele and I had birthdays only three days apart, so she invited me for a celebratory dinner. When she opened her door, I saw stars. The Vogel Museum was lit up by candles, drops of flame in all directions. She set our birthday meal on the table. Del, what is this? I made sardine soup. My bowl was afloat with tiny fragile spines. I gritted my teeth and spooned them up. Dessert was a happily unhorrific carob brownie pierced by one last candle. I said, I brought homework. Want to work on our screenplay? We were collaborating on a script for Hector Curry's film class on the subject of mother-daughter relationships. Dell had her own mama drama, one of the things that had brought us together. She stopped in the act of clearing the table and stepped towards the far doorway. No, actually, there's something I want to show you in the next room. Turned out that that something was her white iron bed. Dell pulls me onto the sheets. I let myself fall. Her hair is a tent around our faces, a bower made with her body alone. Dell is slow, deliberative. Her hand asks wordless questions as she glides up my thigh. She is female in a way I can never be. A different species, watery, insubstantial, as if I could put my fingers right through her skin. Skin that smells of salted grapefruit, her irises are every color of the forest, umber and verdigris and beech tree gold. I am made of thicker clay. I woke up in her bed the next morning. I lay very still and waited for the guilt. 
They waited while we ate our gritty whole grain toast and while her, and while her roommate muttered a blearily unfazed good morning. I waited for guilt about Will, even though I discovered that he'd been unfaithful to me while in co-op in Hamburg. I waited for shame to fall like a meteor and leave a smoking crater in the shape of a strangely made girl. It never did. The sky remained a placid April blue. For the first time in my life, I had deliberately broken the bounds of normalcy. I had let something happen that was difficult and frightening and true about me. My love for Will had come with the gift of acceptance. I knew that if I came out, I'd lose the only societal approval I'd ever had. Perhaps I felt no guilt because I didn't matter as a woman, not to society, not to my family's expectations of future generations. They knew I was not the one who would produce more layers. I supposed I was, quote, bisexual, like Bowie and Colette, but that word didn't quite fit. What was closer to the truth was that I had little sense of bodily affiliation. There was a blank where woman should fit. Spina bifida forced me to perform being female despite being female. Woman was a hard one costume, real and unreal all at once. Was I a girl? A woman? Come to that, a human being? Yes and no. Yes, by birth and by biology. No, by public consensus. No one ever explicitly said I wasn't female, but they didn't have to. I was exempt from everything that female meant. Even now, when I reach for she, it drips off the table like hot syrup and puddles on the floor. Thank you, Reva. Uh, I mean, that is just one. It's, you know, that's like two pages that just reinforce, I think, some of the things I was saying. And I will note uh, for people who get the book, she ended at the top of page 201. There's an asterisk then that you then at the bottom do this impassionate sort of beautiful, um, we don't have to talk about it, but a beautiful, um, your, your claim, your claiming of cisgender of she and her, mm. you know, in terms of, you know, coming to grips of what female meant and being, you know, as you said, in what you just read, being exempt, exempt from that in terms of this, you know, as you said before, at the beginning of what you read, being made of thicker clay, you know, to continue mm. your, your thematic here. Um, it also provides a segue uh, because what follows where you just ended, and another thing I want to say about the book uh, is that because Riva is an important visual artist, um, but this is not an exhibition catalog, this is not an art monograph, this is a memoir, but there are these wonderfully done, I would say, carefully done reproductions of your work throughout the book. And in fact, it also meant that the photographs that are also in the book are nicely printed as well because they had to print the paintings and the, and the artworks of yours. I, I think I'm a snob about these things, but they, I think they did a wonderful job for a, a more mass market you know, publication. They were, I have to absolutely give the most impassioned shout out to my, to my imprint. It's One World uh, imprint of um, Penguin Random House. And what it is, it is uh, dedicated to um, literary social justice. 
their some of their big names are people like Tanahasi Coates, Anita Garza, um, Trevor Noah, uh, Mira Jacob. I mean, just the woman whose name escapes me, who just wrote *The Undocumented Americans*. Um, incredible stuff. I, to my knowledge, am the only person they have dealing with disability. I'm sure that will change, but they really believed in this book, and they did. Um, you don't. Readers, you don't know how unusual it is to have this level of on-page color in a book. Um, what they did, so normally in a book that has a lot of art, you would have what's called signatures, where they would take the pictures and they would put them on photo paper and there'd be a section in the book and you'd kind of flip through the pictures and that would be it. And then you go back and read the story. But I was telling them so much how the, these are not illustrations. These are no. works from the history of my career, but where they are placed has to do with um, resonating with whatever is going on with the text. They're not literally illustrations, but they are tying together who I am as an artist and who I am as a storyteller. So what they did was that they printed them on very high quality text paper. Uh, and what's spectacular is when you look at the book, the pages are all cream colored, but that is that is uh, a coating. So that wherever the image is, it's actually still completely white. Right. So all of the whites in the image pop. And so the point is that this is very expensive and was incredibly labor intensive. And I believe that they ate some of the cost for doing the book because they brought it out at normal hardback price of $30 when this could easily have been a $45 book. I mean, it's right. got page after page and it, they were so respectful and they really want this book to be out there. They feel like it is culturally important. There isn't yeah. another book like it anywhere. And they supported me like crazy. So I just can't well, say enough good things. Yeah, yeah, and as someone who has spent 30 years publishing it and being involved with art books, I knew right away what you just described. I'm like, those images are on white and the pages cream around them, I could mm -hmm. tell. But, but, I, but what I wanna say, and we probably don't wanna to get too into it, but um, the image that's on page 201 is one of your risk pictures. Yes. Um, um, and, you know, you uh, maybe you could describe quickly what the risk pictures were in general, but I also want to go back to something I said earlier and say that this concept of the risk pictures is another one of these sort of structural innovations that relate to this body building kind of you as the you know the relationship between subject and maker, the complexity. So I don't know, Reva, maybe could you give the Cliff Notes yeah. version of the Ricks, the, what the series called the Risk Pictures are? So my entire uh, career as someone dealing with um, stigma has meant that I've understood that when I ask someone to sit for me who has been stigmatized, that it's going to be potentially very uncomfortable. And so I had to really think a lot about the ethics of how to work with someone who maybe had been attacked and mocked and demeaned and on and on and on because of their appearance. So for years now, I've tried to be careful to really listen to what the person needed in the image. I, all of the images are based on things that the person said was authentic to them and that they wanted, not like a commission, 
these were conversations. This was not me just taking dictation and saying, you want a purple teddy bear, you get a purple teddy bear. It's much more complex than that. Yes, boy, I could tell you. Anyway, uh, so- <laughs> I thought there but, must be a story uh, behind that reference. And, uh, <laughs> well, actually it'd be more like dolphins <laughs> in Lake Michigan. That was, that was a difficult conversation. No, you cannot have dolphins in Lake Michigan. I'm sorry. But anyway, um, but that said, it still bothered me that all of the marks that I made in a portrait were still my decision. There still was a way that I felt like I had too much hegemony over the process. And that also, I knew that when I'm working with someone, they're looking back at me and they're, you know, assessing what I look like. And it's such an interestingly circular experience. So, and then finally, just before I explain what risk is, when you go to a museum or a gallery and you see a portrait, what you see in illusion is an illusion. You see the subject. You think you don't see the artist except for uh, whatever formal decisions they've made, but the artist is absent. The subject is present. It's not really true. Um, the relationship between the two is utterly missing. Um, there's some stuff I could say about golems in this respect afterwards, but I hated that the relationship between artist and subject is always gone or appears to be gone. So what I decided to do to address this was to start this series called The Risk Pictures, which I'm still doing in various ways. And so we set up a series, uh, not during COVID, unfortunately, but um, three hour sittings. And someone, you know, like at least five of them, somebody has to commit to at least five three hour sittings. So each time at the two hour mark, I stand up and I walk out the door and I completely leave my subject in charge of everything I own. Like they can eat my food, sleep in my bed, go through my computer, go through my underwear drawer, steal stuff, break stuff. And the deal is I will never ask. Even if I see something, I will never ask, did you take this? Did you eat this? Did you break this? Whatever. It's completely there in control of my life. I am trusting them. But in exchange, they have to alter their portrait while I'm gone. And so because we do this multiple times, we get to have this conversation on the piece about they make a decision, I respond to it. Same way I cannot erase it, I cannot cover it over. I can respond to it so I can elaborate it, pull aspects out of it, draw into it, paint into it, but I cannot obliterate in any way what they did. So the most successful of them for me have been ones where the person really threw themselves into it. And in the case of the piece that Terry is talking about, which is Portrait of Finn Enke, uh, not only was I trusting Finn, I was out of town for a four day weekend and I gave Finn the keys to my house. <laughs> so they, Finn is a, a transgender scholar and uh, artist activist. The book editor for Transgender Quarterly was entering into a different phase of, uh, of um, uh, gender transformation just as we were working together. And in fact, the image, what I love about that image, not only is the fact that Finn added so much little drawings of monsters and creatures and sailboat, and you know, he really got in there. When 
when he, and he does use he and they interchangeably, when he was sitting for me the first time, we were trying to figure out the image for the work. Um, because unlike all of my other images, we don't start with a predetermined image. They just come in and they sit down and then we start to work and see what happens. I, we don't have a story ahead of time at all. So he's sitting there on a chair and he was talking about whether or not to start taking testosterone. And I said, well, so what would testosterone give you that you don't currently have? And he said, well, this isn't really, this doesn't feel like my real body. And I said, can you, can you describe your real body for me? And he took his hands and he hovered them just an inch or two in front of his chest. And he said, this is where my body is. And, and it was that moment of like, I see your invisible body and I see your portrait and here we are. And it just looks like he's making a point in the story, but that's not actually what's going on. Right. He's showing us the boundaries of what we cannot see. So that became where we started. And then we went into all of this gender play in the rest of the portrait. But because I trusted him and he trusted me, he could show me this incredibly intimate and secret part of himself. And it's that that I lived for as a portraitist is because not only did Finn show me something true about him, he showed me a way of thinking about our invisible bodies. And I, I've done a lot of work about invisible bodies. And this was one I had never thought of. So, yeah, and, 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 and it, all of the risk pictures are so remarkable in the range of what they are as works of art too. That again, they're all, if you know Riva's work, you're like, yes, I know that is Riva's work, but they're also, the, the range is so remarkable. And again, the book, not only does the book uh, reproduce many of them, but another great feature of the book is at the very end, you have this uh, extended writing about the, the work, some of which is uh, the words of the, the, the person. Um, or you're quoting from them or, or you know, that, that, that it gives a lot of information because again, that this idea that like, it's almost like, you know, if you wanted to be a didactic artist, this portrait of Finn would need like its own asterisk. And then you'd have that story, like, you know, in someone's ear or something about what you just said about what the gesture, the hands means. As someone who's a visual interested in visual art, I I appreciate that I don't have that forced on me. Maybe I learn it at some point, maybe not. And what I'm doing now, I'm also I'm aware of the time, but I'm also now going to make the segue that is working perfectly for me right now to sort of bring okay. us home, which Go is another of the people who did this collaboration with you is. Uh, uh, one of your biggest fans for sure, and I am one of his biggest fans, as I do know you are, is the novelist David Mitchell, mm -hmm. um, author of Cloud Atlas, et cetera, et cetera. And not to um, hype another event, but Reva did uh, a conversation with David for the Chicago Humanities Festival yeah. that is just transcendently breathtaking, like just, 
and and mainly because of David sort of having these realizations and talking to you. It's like, oh my God, this I'm watching this man sort of reinvent what the next work he's going to be doing is because of what he's saying to Reba. I mean, you and I both, we, we both, we are both obsessed fans about David's writing, but David basically wrote all over his drawing what transpired, yeah. right? <laughs> so, well, which I've not yet read it, but. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, so. Have I sent you the, I'll send you the big no, send, Yeah, I but, but, but I, I don't necessarily, I just wanted to mention that because another thing that I can't compete with what you and David did, but right after it was over, I sent Reva a PDF of a text that has been very important to me, written by two, um, I guess they're art historians slash art theorists by the names of J.R.R. Christie and Fred Orton, they're from England, and an amazing essay called Writing on a Text of the Life. And because I, some of the things I've written have been about biography. I haven't written memoir, although I'm doing this compilation of all the exhibition reviews I wrote right now. And my shrink Yay. was the one who encouraged me to do them chronologically, because as she said to me, she said, um, you may found out you wrote a novel after all. Um, and I'm like, well, maybe I wrote a memoir after all, because I was a devotee of the art critic Gary Deanna, who was writing for the Village Voice in the 80s, where he would talk about what happened on the way to the gallery in the, the two thirds of the review. And it would be the most meaningful thing ever I'd ever read on this artist, like made deep impression on me. But I, I, I'm putting Reva on the spot here because I just I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you something, Reva, that I want you to respond to. So these are this is Christian Orton. They say at one point in this amazing text, um, we can state bluntly our own justification of and for biography, and that is that it is unavoidable. This is because humans are irreducibly narratable, narrating beings. Richard Rorty, the famous philosopher, says somewhere that we live in story after story after story. Stories indeed are the primary device through which we first begin to apprehend consciously the possible connected meanings of the world. We not only internalize and retain these stories, but the idea of story too, and we never abandon it. In every historically and culturally specific human head is a scriptwriter and speaker who never stops writing and speaking these historically and culturally specific stories. If you stopped reading now for 15 to 30 seconds, that is the voice you would hear filling the eternal silence. It has endless stories at its disposal, genres and subgenres, plots, digressions, beginnings and ends. So this, your book to me is a reinforcing of there are all these stories in it, but it ain't all the stories because we live in story after story after story. We are simultaneously narrating and narratable. You know, it's inevitable as they say. And I think you're this congruent, this confluence now of your, now Riva Lair, the author, and Riva Lair, the artist sort of brings that home to me because this is a text that's about art. They start with Rothko in this text, Mark Rothko, and they're like, well, how do we know, and I used to teach students this text, I'd be like, you know, if an alien came from outer space and landed and 
went in front of a rock, saw people in front of a rock and people were crying, they'd have no idea. Like, you know, it's not there. It's not, there's nothing there. <laughs> and, you know, they go on to talk about cultural agents and stories that are maintained and how they say at one point, there's no such thing as expression. There are claims to expression. You know, this idea of, of um, mm. you know, that we have that voice in our heads. And I would always say to my students as I was talking and elucidating this the way I'm doing to you right now, it's like, it's like, Riva, any of us who are good at language and good at the visual, I think we're like, I, I'm probably right now as I'm talking to you also thinking about what I'm going to have for my late lunch. You know, like we're, our brains are very good at like um, telling ourselves stories, even while we're hearing another story. So on, so all those layers, all that construction. And I just see you as like, and the work you've done now and the book being added to it is so reinforcing that for me. Um, so I'm just curious, like what, what your well, responses are. Two really that. major responses. One is one of the fights I kept having with my editors, well, as wonderful as they are, is they kept saying, well, but we want your story. And I would say, but my story is the story of these other people. I'd be talking all about, you know, people in my family, but also, you know, the people in, in queer world and disability world and, you know, everyone, because the other part of being a golem is that I'm a construction of other people in good and bad ways that, you know, the ones who gave me permission to be other than what I was told I was gonna be. And the ones who tried even with good intentions to keep me limited because they thought if I wasn't limited, I would get hurt. So we do absolutely construct each other constantly. I am a story made of the stories of others. Right, can so I just interject too also before you go on to your second point is that sure. it's also a story of the, about the story. Yes. Like there's this whole exactly. kind of meta thing that happens It's a story too. of the story. Right. That's exactly what it is. And I'm writing a new book. And the book is very much about, um, it's, a, it's about someone who uh, can't accept the reality of death and begins to deal with it. It's very complicated by, endeavoring to figure out how to take uh, people who seem to have no story and give them stories. There are two people doing this for in wildly different ways for wildly different reasons. And it's an exploration of um, the desperation to use story in order to cope with the fact of both time and death. Um, so wow. that's what I'm working on now. Wow, that's fantastic. And it's fiction. It's fiction. That, that's fantastic. Well, fiction. again, I, 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 these categories of fiction and nonfiction, um, I think mm. being an art critic and writing, like doing, going through all these reviews that I wrote for the past mm. 30 years, you know, they're all, they're fiction as much as they are nonfiction. Like, you know, they're, they, they are, they are, uh, they are a construction of, so many things and what's interesting is working on them now is how much they trigger memories and then I'm not necessarily that confident about the memory you know memory being you know 
uh, as David Mitchell proves to us time and time again in his work. But the other thing, another thing I wanted to bring up here that I love about this Christian Orton text that I brought to the table here is um, they also at one point quote one of my biggest heroes, which is Mark Twain and mm. Twain's ability to completely always skewer sort of received ideas. And they bring up his great anecdote where he completely annihilates the cliched idea about actions speak louder than words. And he says, that's just BS, you know, that like, you know, that, that they, they say, he says, actions are just the clothes and buttons on the man. And that, <laughs> that, that, um, that words we have, we have words in just a few moments in our head that would fill so many volumes, you know, that we just, you know, that, that words just wash over us and that, that, and that, that your, what Gollum Girl brought to me is words are in everything you do. Not that you're, a, you're, you're your work is about that, how a painting even can function as a narrating and narratable being, you know, Which as this thing difficult. on the wall. Yeah, which is very difficult. And the complexity of all this, um, just maybe at the moment that you feel like you can't wrap your head around it any of it, I think what your book helps show is that, well, maybe you don't necessarily have to wrap your head around it. You just go with the story. You just be there, you know, you just just be there the and your story, you know, any, any of us who read know that one of the motivations I don't think I'm alone in this for reading is that we're read we're reading our own story as we read stories. We're reading, you know, because we're in our head in our own stories as we're even reading someone else's story. Maybe there are moments where like you're so engrossed in something where that voice can go out of your head, but I don't really think so. I think it's always there. Um, you know, it just, well, it's the human condition. Um, I'll, I'll, pull that into a slightly different direction, um, which is something I was going to touch on earlier in terms of Golem, which is that there's a chapter in the book called The Skin We Live In. That's an exploration of uh, sort of how fraught um, portraiture is right now, but also that I have discovered, and it goes exactly to what you're saying, which is that um, when I'm doing a portrait and I look at it afterwards, there's always something I did that I totally subconsciously, unwillingly, accidentally, however you want to say it, took something about my own body and imposed it on the body of my subject. And the closer I am to the subject, I think sometimes the more likely it is for that to happen. And so I've thought about this a lot. I call it leakage. And I've taken it out of the realm of, oh, that was a mistake. Although I don't particularly want to be doing it. I, it's certainly not intentional. But I've also looked at a lot of artists who do this. And the most famous to me is Leonardo da Vinci, where if you look at da Vinci self-portraits and you look at his subjects, you can almost always find a hell of a lot of Leo in whoever it is, with the possible exception of Ginevra da Benci, maybe. But, um, but that we, it's such a beautiful uh, illustration of the way that in our attempt to understand another life, we're always going to conflate it with our own, confuse it with our own, 
that this is both necessary and dangerous and that you know we can risk obliterating the truth of someone else by imposing our own and yet if we don't in some way dissolve that boundary between the fact of the other and ourself then you all all that happens is you stay external to it so it's a um it's a really tricky place and you know it's not anything i think i would ever want to do on purpose um as a portraiture act that would feel uh aggressive and assaultive but seeing that for instance i might have made someone too short or made their hands too big or give them my nose by mistake or made when I drew my friend Tim Lowley, he ended up looking a little like my brother. So it might not even be me, it might be my brother. Um, it's, uh, it's an act of devotion, but it's very complicated. And I think it goes really a lot to what we're struggling with right now as a society in terms of trying to see each other clearly, to find resonance in each other's experience, to not co-opt someone else's reality while opening ourselves to dropping boundaries and that is the hard dance of human interaction is keeping ourselves while abandoning ourselves right no I, I wrote something recently that i said i'm paraphrasing here that i don't know that there's anything more important than recognize that i called the essay recognize and like to then recognizing something for what it is but that that is it's a nearly impossible task but what you're describing is not narcissism i mean it can it can metastasize to that and become mm -hmm. as you said you know but it is you know again back to like tway like you know <laughs> The words in our head are only in our head. Like you know, we you know, we we're not yet to the singularity or Marvel superhero moment where like we can have um, telepathy. Like you know, like we don't we don't have we only have the the only voice is the voice in our head that we really have with us all the time, and um, you know, it's damn complex. You know, yeah. and again, I think um, your work recognizes that and takes responsibility for it you know and i think Thank that's you. what you're describing is that it's it's that that there's there's a you know you and i've talked um about your ethical position which is which is rock solid meaning that it sometimes falters like i don't yeah. think you can have a truly yeah. rock solid ethical position that in itself is a not an ethical position because you can't have rigidity, you know, when it comes to ethics, but um, to have self-awareness and, and, you know, acknowledgements of when you F up too, you know, like, you know, owning that is Which important. I, by the way, um, just before we, we say goodbye, uh, I just read a couple of entertaining novels, uh, um, part one and part two, Hank Green, who's the brother of John Green, who wrote The Vault in Our Stars, uh, has a pair of novels called, I think, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, and uh, what's the other one? I have it over there. Um, uh, God, I, the 
titles eluding me, but it raises the question of what would be the, if we could have a digital experience where we enter into someone else's mind completely. And that would be sort of our form of entertainment would be visiting other people's minds. Like, what would that really mean? And I thought it was, uh, it can, his work can get a little bit like sophomore seminar, but there's enough fun in it that I, right. I think it's a good way to kind of think through some of that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Anyway. Well, anyway, Reba, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you, Kelsey um, and everyone at Skylight. Um, you're my favorite place, you know. Thank you, Terry. Um, thank you, Reva. Um, thank you. What a lovely chat that was. Um, and for our listeners, you can buy her new book, Gollum Girl, at uh, skylightbooks.com. And um, thank you guys so much and take care. Uh, you're welcome. Have a good you day. Are, thank you, you again, Reva. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.